Part Three, Chapter Two of The Secret City. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Secret City by Hugh Walpole. Part Three, Chapter Two. That Thursday was March 15th. I was conscious of my existence again on Sunday, April 1st. I opened my eyes and saw that there was a thaw. That was the first thing of which I was aware, that water was apparently dripping on every side of me. It is a strange sensation to lie on your bed very weak and very indifferent, and to feel the world turning to moisture all about you. My ramshackle habitation had never been a very strong defense against the outside world. It seemed now to have definitely decided to abandon the struggle. The water streamed down the panes of my window opposite my bed. One patch of my ceiling, just above my only bookcase, confound it, was colored a moldy gray, and from this huge drops like elephant's tears splashed monotonously. Already the spirit of man was disfigured by a long gray streak, and the green back of Galleon's roads was splotched with stains. Someone had placed a bucket near the door to catch a perpetual stream flowing from the corner of the room. Down into the bucket it pattered with a hasty, giggling, hysterical jiggle. I rather liked the companionship of it. I didn't mind it at all. I really minded nothing whatever. I sighed my appreciation of my return to life. My sigh brought someone from the corner of my room, and that someone was, of course, the inevitable rat. He came up to my bed in his stealthy, furtive fashion, and looked at me reproachfully. I asked him, my voice sounding to myself strange and very far away, what he was doing there. He answered that if it had not been for him I should be dead. He had come early one morning, and found me lying in my bed, and no one in the place at all. No one because the old woman had vanished. Yes, the neighbors had told him, apparently on that very Thursday she had decided that the revolution had given her her freedom, and that she was never going to work for anybody ever again. She had told a woman neighbor that she heard that the land now was going to be given back to everybody, and she was returning therefore to her village somewhere in the Moscow province. She had not been back there for twenty years and first, to celebrate her liberty, she would get magnificently drunk on furniture polish. "'I did not see her, of course,' said the Rat. "'No, when I came, early in the morning, no one was here. I thought that you were dead, Baron, and I began collecting your property so that no one else should take it. Then you made a movement, and I saw that you were alive. So I got some cabbage soup and gave it to you. That certainly saved you.' I'm going to stay with you now. I did not care in the least whether he went or stayed. He chattered on. By staying with me, he would inevitably neglect his public duties. Perhaps I didn't know that he had public duties. Yes, he was now an anarchist, and I should be astonished very shortly by the things the anarchists would do. All the same, they had their own discipline. They had their own processions, too like anyone else. Only four days ago he had marched all over Petrograd, carrying a black flag. 
He must confess that he was rather sick of it, but they must have processions. Even the prostitutes had marched down the Nevsky the other day, demanding shorter hours. But of course I cannot remember all that he said. During the next few days I slowly pulled myself out of the misty dead world in which I had been lying. Pain came back to me, leaping upon me and then receding, finally on the third day suddenly leaving me altogether. The rat fed me on cabbage soup and glasses of tea and caviar and biscuits. During those three days he never left me, and indeed tended me like a woman. He would sit by my bed and with his rough hand stroke my hair, while he poured into my ears ghastly stories of the many crimes that he had committed. I noticed that he was cleaner and more civilized. His beard was clipped and he smelt of cabbage and straw, a rather healthy smell. One morning he suddenly took the pail, filled it with water, and washed himself in front of my windows. He scrubbed himself until I should have thought that he had no skin left. "'You're a fine big man, Rat,' I said. He was delighted with that, and came quite near my bed, stretching his naked body, his arms and legs and chest, like a pleased animal. "'Yes, I'm a fine man, Baron,' he said. "'Many women have loved me, and many will again.' Then he went back, and producing clean drawers and vest from somewhere, I suspect that they were mine, but I was too weak to care, put them on. On the second and third days I felt much better. The thaw was less violent, the wood crackled in my stove. On the morning of Wednesday, April 14th, I got up, dressed, and sat in front of my window. The ice was still there, but over it lay a faint, a very faint, filmy sheen of water. It was a day of gleams, the sun flashing in and out of the clouds. Just beneath my window a tree was pushing into bud. Pools of water lay thick on the dirty melting snow. I got the rat to bring a little table and put some books on it. I had near me The Spirit of Man, Keats's Letters, The Roads, Meadows, and Pride and Prejudice. A consciousness of the outer world crept, like warmth, through my bones. Rat, I said, who's been to see me? No one, said he. I felt suddenly a ridiculous affront. No one, I asked, incredulous. No one, he answered. They've all forgotten you, Baron, he added maliciously, knowing that that would hurt me. It was strange how deeply I cared. Here was I who, only a short while before, had declared myself done with the world forever, and now I was almost crying because no one had been to see me. Indeed, I believe in my weakness and distress, I actually did cry. No one at all? Not Vera, nor Nina, nor Jeremy, nor Bohun? Not young Bohun, even? And then slowly my brain realized that there was now a new world. None of the old conditions held any longer. We had been the victims of an earthquake. Now it was every man for himself. Quickly then there came upon me an eager desire to know what had happened in the Markovitch family. What of Jerry and Vera? What of Nicholas? What of Semyonov? Rat, I said, this afternoon I am going out. Very well, Baron, he said. I, too, have an engagement. In the afternoon I crept out like an old sick man. 
I felt strangely shy and nervous. When I reached the corner of Ekaterinovsky Canal and the English Prospect, I decided not to go in and see the Markovitches. For one thing, I shrank from the thought of their compassion. I had not shaved for many days. I was that dull, sickly yellow color that offends the taste of all healthy, vigorous people. I did not want their pity. No, I would wait until I was stronger. My interest in life was reviving with every step that I took. I don't know what I had expected the outside world to be. This was April 14th. It was nearly a month since the outburst of the revolution, and surely there should be signs in the streets of the results of such a cataclysm. There were, on the surface, no signs. There was the same little cinema on the canal with its gaudy-colored posters. There was the old woman sitting at the foot of the little bridge with her basket of apples and bootlaces. There was the same wooden hut with the sweets and the fruit, the same figures of peasant women, soldiers, boys hurrying across the bridge, the same slow, sleepy Svostchik stumbling along carelessly. One sign there was, exactly opposite the little cinema, on the other side of the canal, was a high gray block of flats. This now was starred and sprayed with the white marks of bullets. It was like a man marked for life with smallpox. That building alone was witness to me that I had not dreamt the events of that week. The thaw made walking very difficult. The water poured down the sides of the houses and gurgled in floods through the pipes. The snow was slippery under the film of gleaming wet, and there were huge pools at every step. Across the middle of the English prospect, near the baths, there was quite a deep lake. I wandered slowly along, enjoying the chill warmth of the soft spring sun. The winter was nearly over. Thank God for that. What had happened during my month of illness? Perhaps a great revolutionary army had been formed, and a mighty, free, and united Russia was going out to save the world. Oh, I did hope that it was so. Surely that wonderful white week was a good omen. No revolution in history had started so well as this one. I found my way at last very slowly to the end of the quay, and the sight of the round towers of my favorite church was like the reassuring smile of an old friend. The sun was dropping low over the Neva. The whole vast expanse of the river was colored very faintly pink. Here, too, there was the film of the water above the ice. The water caught the color, but the ice below it was gray and still. Clouds of crimson and orange and faint gold streamed away in great waves of light from the sun. The long line of buildings and towers on the farther side was jet black. The masts of the ships clustering against the quay were touched at their tips with bright gold. It was all utterly still, not a sound nor a movement anywhere. Only one figure, that of a woman, was coming slowly towards me. I felt as one always does at the beginning of a Russian spring, a strange sense of expectation. Spring in Russia is so sudden and so swift that it gives an overwhelming impression of a powerful organizing power behind it. Suddenly the shutters are pulled back and the sun floods the world. Upon this afternoon one could feel the urgent business of preparation pushing forward, arrogantly, ruthlessly. I don't think that I had ever before realized the power of the Neva at such close quarters. 
I was almost ashamed at the contrast of its struggle with my own feebleness. I saw then that the figure coming towards me was Nina. End of Part 3 Chapter 2 Recording by Narrator Jay